I'd invite you to open up your Bible to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 15, and we'll look there in just a moment. It is certainly good to see each one here, and especially thankful to the visitors for your attendance. It's uh, been a very pleasant week for me. I hope that it has for you. I hope that the lessons have been helpful. Um, I've so enjoyed the visits with you all. Um, this week, out of each year, I'm usually in uh, Franklin County, Alabama, hosting a series of Bible studies for men, and um, Tom Holly is one of the men that, that comes up there and speaks, and uh, due to the restrictions that are still in, in place in our state, I could not do that this year. And so, um, between that being canceled and all of the gospel meetings, really, that I had planned this year being canceled, when Andrew asked if I could come, I said, yeah, my schedule is actually wide open. And then um, a friend of mine who usually comes to that study said, uh, I'm going to come up without even knowing that he, that I was coming here for a meeting. said, me and some other guys are coming up there to study with Tom Holly. Would you like to join us? And I said, well, I'll be right up the road. <laughs> so I've been going down there every day. And so it's afforded me that opportunity to, to sit with Tom and go through the book of Jeremiah um, for about six or seven hours a day. And then to come here and to... Uh, study with you all, to spend time visiting with you all, and, and I've just so enjoyed that time. I appreciate the, the good spirit that you have here, and uh, I am glad to see you all sort of um, recovered and fairly moving along like normal. A lot of churches aren't yet, and uh, I, I'm glad to see some, some normalcy somewhere, and I, I hope that you continue to be blessed in your efforts here in Columbus. Um, in Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. It is not a story about the prodigal son. He's included in it. But the story is actually uh, directed, aimed at, in fact, all three of the parables here in this chapter are aimed at um, the the ones represented by the older brother here in this parable. Uh, a brother that is self-righteous and obstinate and um, jealous uh, of the penitence of others. But of course, the prodigal son is who we largely focus on and, uh, and maybe the father as well. And I think sometimes we focus on several elements, but I don't know that we ever give the kind of attention that we ought to to the confession, to the, the sorrow of the prodigal son. In verse 21, it says, The son said to him, to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want to suggest to you that's a really good apology. And it's the sort of apology that I think, you know, we need to be wrapping our minds around. We live in a culture full of bad apologies. People are constantly getting into all sorts of trouble, sometimes for things that they really shouldn't get in trouble for, sometimes things that they should get in real bad trouble for. But inevitably, when they get in trouble, when something comes to public light, then you've got some um, sort of sheepish fella or woman standing up in front of some cameras and uh, offering some sort of half-hearted, 
insincere apology, hoping it'll all go away. And I think that that seeps into our homes, into our relationships, and we think that those are sufficient apologies, whether on the giving end or the receiving end. And I understand we want to not um, sort of uh, wallow in conflict and so forth, but I think conflict is, is best resolved when people make good apologies, when they mean it, and they build on those good apologies. So I want to talk about that. How do you say I'm sorry? I think it's, it's something that we ought to be real good at because we're Christians. And the very nature of our relationship as Christians starts with really a humble apology to God. I'm sorry. And if you don't mean that, then you're probably not a Christian. If you hadn't learned to say I'm sorry to God, that is the very foundation of entering into a relationship with God. It's me saying I'm, I'm a wretched man who will save me. Romans or Matthew chapter 5, as you're looking through the Beatitudes, that's the foundation. The poor in spirit, here am I. The one who weeps and mourns over my spiritual state. And it's only then that you can sort of get the, the comfort that comes from recognizing those things. Well, I want to begin then by, by looking at the attitude behind a good apology. When we say, I'm sorry, that, that phrase there, I am sorry, what do we mean by that? Well, at the very heart of that, what we mean is, I feel sorrow, right? So, so we might say that actually sort of taking blame, but, but even stepping back from that for just a moment, just saying the words, I'm sorry, if we mean it, what we're saying is, I have sorrow, I feel sorrow. And a whole lot of apologies don't even have this going for them. And you can sort of tell by the tone, somebody will say, well, I'm sorry, but okay, what, no, I don't think you are. I mean, like I heard those words, but I don't think that's really what you mean, that you're actually, that you have sorrow. So we can sort of tell whether somebody actually has the sorrow, or maybe they'll say something like, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. What more do you want? Well, it's not so much what more do I want. It's what I want. Like, I just want those words to actually mean what they say, that you actually have sorrow. It doesn't even have to be a recognition of wrongdoing all the time. Sometimes we're just, we actually feel sorrow. Like it's, it's, an, it's a, a sort of an expression of sympathy, maybe. So we say that sometimes. I remember if there was a fellow who would take issue with that. He's a very literal kind of a guy. And he said, why do we tell people I'm sorry uh, when, it, when it's something that we didn't do wrong? What, what we're saying is I have sorrow. I sorrow with you. I, I have sorrow that you've lost a loved one. So we might say at a funeral, I'm sorry. This is the way I think God says, I'm sorry. I don't think God ever would say, I'm sorry, in that I did something wrong, but that God repents, or that God is sorry that he did something. So over in Genesis chapter 6, it's a passage some people have a difficulty with. How could God uh, ever feel this way? How could he ever say such a thing? But in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6, you remember there, leading up to the story of the flood, it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. I think the idea is that God sees a, a pitiful situation. He sees a, a grievous situation. And so, and so it is a, a cause of sorrow. Exodus chapter 32, likewise. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 14. It says there, so the Lord changed his mind. Now that changed his mind is actually the same word for sorry. 
back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6. A similar idea there. That, so he changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. And so um, there's that idea of, no, I, I really don't want to do that. And, and, of course, we're trying to reconcile that with the fact that God is unchanging. And I, I know there's some difficulty maybe there. It certainly doesn't, what it certainly doesn't mean is that God says, oh, I just shouldn't have done that. But it means that God grieves. It is, I think, to some degree, along the lines of the kind of apology Paul would make in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, maybe you remember there, Paul is in this second letter, Um, following up on some of the things that he had commanded in the first letter, some instructions, indeed, which they had followed, and maybe um, later in 2 Corinthians, maybe they'd, we get some indications they'd followed them over zealously. But at any rate, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and in verse 7, um, excuse me, no, 2 Corinthians chapter, I'm, I'm in the wrong chapter there. It is chapter 7 that I'm looking for. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, you see that uh, he goes through uh, in beginning of verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, uh, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as you reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced in even more. And then he says this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though, he says, I did regret it. For I see that that, that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He goes on to say, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So, Paul is not talking out of both sides of his mouth when he says, I, I did regret it, but not really, but then sort of yes. It's the idea of, like, Paul, when he's writing this letter, says, boy, I, can't, I could just taste their tears right now, you know. No. But he sort of does want them to have tears. And so it's a little bit torn. I think God's that way. I think God feels both things. That he wants to see the penitence. He wants to see the sorrow on our part. But God doesn't relish sort of dumping on us, if you will. So that would be Exodus chapter 32. Like he, This is just. It would be right for him to do the things that he promised he was going to do. And, and yet there's sorrow there and says, I don't want to do that. And if I could find a way to not have to do that, well, that'd be better. Well, that's, that's what we can do. Do and I think if we can at least think that if you if you can start from the premise of how would I express sorrow not even for guilt but just like do I feel that way and if I don't feel that way when I'm offering an apology you see it's it's maybe it's easier for us to put ourselves in the mindset of having sorrow when we're not to blame so that we can kind of get a picture of the feeling in our mind so that when we come over to where we are to blame okay do I feel like that. Do I have that? And if I don't, then don't offer the cheap apology. Don't offer the, well, I'm sorry. No, just take that back. Just swallow those words. Don't give the, I'm sorry, but, no, no, no. Then you're not. Either you feel it or you don't. Um, so we have to start with the right attitude. 
Do you, do you actually have that? Well, sorrow for what? Sorrow needs to have a, a source. And if it's not connected with something, a lot of times what it is is uh, depression. You know, sometimes people feel sorrow and it's not because of anything they've done. It's not because anything bad happened. And, and maybe it's not just depression. I mean, maybe not in a clinical way. Sometimes we just feel down. Maybe the, the weather's bad. And so we have some sorrow over that. And, and, and while that just may happen from time to time, if, if we constantly find ourselves sorrowing with no foundations, no basis, I don't think that's, you know, that's not what Christ is commending in Matthew chapter 5. He's not saying, you know, blessed are those who mourn for no good reason. Blessed are those who mourn but not, are not sure why. I think he's building a case. You know why you're mourning. And you'll find comfort because you're mourning over something for which you can be comforted. One of the problems when you are sorrowing over something that has no foundations, it's very hard to comfort. You know, when you know why, well, we can deal with that. We can, we can start trying to, to find the way back up. You know, I, I deal with this. I, I live in a house full of ladies. And I remember the first time my, my oldest daughter was crying. And I said, baby, what is wrong? Not the first time she's crying. The first time she was crying in this circumstance. I said, what is wrong? And she just said, I don't know. And I looked at Amy and she goes, "This, I, you're, you're going to need to leave. I, I'll take care of this. So, okay. I don't know. I don't know how to help right there. And really, a lot of times, it's just time. But... But when we just sort of allow ourselves to sort of embrace that sorrow, I think there are people who want to embrace melancholy. It's not what we're talking about here. It's not a very good thing if you're always going around apologizing just to sort of avoid conflict. You're not sort of saying, I'm sorry because I did this. I'm sorry because I was wrong, because I take responsibility. It's more like just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's not the kind of apology that we're looking for. We're talking about, I know what I did. And it hurts. And, and I, I feel the pain of the wrong that I did versus I just really don't want you angry with me. And so I think we need to separate those kinds of apologies. There are substantive apologies. And then there are just conflict avoidance apologies. Maybe, maybe passive aggressive uh, apologies. Um, I think that we might also be sorry. It, it, it is appropriate to be sorry for something we didn't do, as I said, maybe the death of a loved one. It may be sorry uh, that we are sorry because uh, of the effect of something we did that it had on someone while not taking full responsibility for like bad behavior. And I think that's Appropriate, Like, there may be varying levels here. I think back to the Old Testament law concerning um, manslaughter, uh, involuntary manslaughter. So if, if you're familiar, you may understand the, the cities of refuge, and you understand the nature of those cities. So, so you do something, you're, you're, you're engaged in some activity, you're chopping wood, the axe flies out of your hand, you kill your neighbor, he's still dead. And so you might have real sorrow over that. 
And you may even have some responsibility at some level, though there's no intent. There's, there's nothing really that you could have done differently. I mean, you would if you could. But still, God expected you to go run to one of these cities and find some solace. It's, it's almost like even when, when accidental damage is done, there ought to be some level of saying, I will still take at least some responsibility. Not so much responsibility that you say, I deserve the death penalty. But enough that, hey, my life will forever be changed and inconvenienced because of even an accident that occurred. So, it's not necessarily even you saying, I am sorry at the deepest level or, or I take full responsibility. I do think there's a problem where we, um, sometimes we apologize and we don't recognize at all um, our part. You know, if, if the person who, who committed the involuntary manslaughter said, look, I'm sorry, but... Whoa, that was the axe that flew out of your hands. I know it was an accident, but take that much responsibility. Now, let's bring it down to maybe a more everyday level for us. Maybe I say something. I don't mean anything harmful by it. I have no intent, no malice when I say something, and yet my wife's feelings are hurt. Now, sometimes we get astonished by what hurts our spouse. How could that have hurt your feelings? I don't... What did that, how could that? How could you have taken it that way, right? We start to get angry, maybe even. But if I say something and, and as a result she's hurt, I want her to know I am, I am sorry that it came out of my mouth. Not, not that I'm taking responsibility for intent and malice, and I may even say, I certainly didn't mean that. But I'll try to be more thoughtful about that in the future. Because I, I don't want her to be hurt. So I'll, I'll even take what responsibility I can there. I think where we really get off the rails is when we start making an apology that says, I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize for your feelings. And this is the modern day apology, right? I'm sorry if you took that the wrong way. Not I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry if you took it the wrong way. I'm sorry that you got upset. Well, then you're not sorry, right? Or, or at the at the most, you are upset that I'm upset is really what you're saying. And so that's not really taking any responsibility. If we truly are sorry for what we've done, then then our apologies should express that. We should say something like, "I am sorry that I did this or said this." I should not have done that. I should not have said that. Or at the very least, I will not do that in the future. Or something to that effect. This is very different than saying, you took that the wrong way and, and, and beginning to place the blame on the other side. Um, I think sometimes when we engage in bad behavior, Good intentions do not mitigate bad behavior. Sometimes we don't know we're behaving badly. I understand that. But if it's bad behavior, then you not knowing doesn't mean that, that the harm was not done. As long as you meant well, then it's okay. Um, Saul constantly tried this tactic 
um, in, in both of his, his sins uh, that began his, his path away from God, kind of down the path of deterioration towards um, selfishness and, and, and really sort of, um, I think, some level of insanity. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, perhaps you remember when, when God told, uh, through Samuel, told Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites for what they had done to Israel during the period of Exodus. He goes and instead of doing that, he spares King Agag as well as um, the best uh, of the animals. Samuel comes to Saul and um, after, after being alerted to this and Saul immediately just acts like nothing's wrong, receives him. Um, basically says, you know, blessed are you of the Lord. How are you doing? You know, I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, well, then what, what do I hear? This bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen. So he says, they, the people, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we have utterly destroyed. You know, what would be wrong? You know, what's how could you disobey God by trying to honor God? How could it ever be wrong to to save something in order to give it to God? Well, if God told you to destroy it, that's how it could be wrong. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how pure his motives were there. And maybe his motives aren't pure, but, but even if he's completely being honest, that this was the reason that we really wanted to give these things to God, it doesn't matter. What Saul did is still wrong. So I hear sometimes people will, will be very callous and careless in the way that they interact with other people. And then they'll say something like, well, I didn't mean to be rude. What? Maybe you didn't mean to be. But, but if you were, then you were, whether you meant to or not. Or, or somebody says, well, I wasn't trying to hurt your feelings. I remember one time I was teaching a, I was teaching a class, and there was a, a fellow who had a bit of a reputation for obnoxiousness. And, and he, said, he said a couple of things in the class, and, and my mother happened to be in the class, and she could tell I was getting frustrated and uh, and at one point he, he he said something I think I'd misspelled a word on the PowerPoint and and there's nothing like going through and you're trying to make an impactful point and somebody says hey did you notice you misspelled that word and I'm like and so she could see that and he goes look I'm not trying to be a jerk and my mom I think she was a little flustered at that point she said it's okay some people don't even have to try and I think that's right. So we, we, we act like that's an excuse to say, well, I'm not trying. I know, that, that makes it worse. Like, I wish you had to try. But when it's just natural, maybe you need to hear it even more so. Because, because it's just coming out and you think that because you behave this way all the time that you shouldn't have to apologize because jerk is who I am. That's part of the problem. It's become so natural that you think it should just be generally accepted. I think that most of the time, 
when people are offensive, when people are hurtful and unkind and hateful, that it's not intentional. When, when was the last time that somebody hurt you, a coworker, your spouse? Do you think they woke up that morning and thought, all right, what's the best way to hurt him today? What can I say that would really get under his skin? Now, I know there probably are people like that out there. Maybe they are. But just not many. When was the last time you did that? You, know, you really plotted. The last time you hurt somebody and you really plotted to do that. That's not how it works. Most of us just go along acting naturally. We, we respond and we react in the first thing that comes to our mind. And so it's not a matter of, of intentional offenses and intentional hurts that we cause. Most of the harm we do is unintentional. I remember talking to Wes Brown several years ago, and he was talking about a fellow had made some points that about how God is not really concerned with the unintentional sin, that the unintentional sin will not cause us to be lost. It would only be sort of intentional sins. And he sort of described how we delineate between those. And, and he categorized all these unintentional sins. And Wes was like, well, great, that's, that pretty much covers all my sins. And that's true for most of us. Most of us don't walk out the door saying, I'm going to commit some good ones today. No, they just, they happen. And they, they come because we're not thinking, because we're not being intentional. That's why we sin. So, please don't think I didn't mean to is a good excuse. I didn't mean to means you don't have to apologize. It doesn't really even lessen the blow. Maybe a little bit, but certainly doesn't take away the harm. And it doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. I think one of the things that we need to do then is to see whether our behavior is to be blamed. Like, is there something here I need to take responsibility for? Maybe put it another way. Is there something here I can take responsibility for? When I get into conflict, especially with someone I'm close to, and I want to find resolution, I look, is there somewhere I can take responsibility and say, for this, I wish I had not done this, and I'm sorry that I did do this or say this? And if we're looking with that kind of investigation, with that kind of humble approach as to sort of the defensive posture where, you know, maybe maybe we might look and say, well, I might could have handled that better, but, and, and that's, that's the defensive posture. Rather, I want to be in the more conciliatory posture, the more humble approach. Again, that starts from at least having genuine sorrow. If I start there, like, even if I didn't do anything wrong, I'm still, I sorrow to see that someone I love is sorrowing. If I can start from there, then maybe that helps me have the humility to begin investigating. Um, there's certainly a difference between saying something innocent which is misconstrued, doing something innocent which is misconstrued, that uh, than, than doing something in which there is actual blame. But I suggest to you, even when there's innocence, our approach ought to be humble. I think Joshua 22 gives me one of the best stories about 
an innocent accusation. You may be familiar with the story. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had claimed their land beyond the Jordan before they crossed the Jordan. And there was a little bit of a tussle even when they claimed that that territory of of Gilead there because the thought was, you're not going to go in and help us conquer the land? And, uh, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We'll go in and help conquer the land. When that's over, we, we'll come back because this is good land for us. Okay, well and good. So they do go conquer the land that we read of in the first half of Joshua. The tribes are dispersed. The Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh cross back over the Jordan to possess that territory. And then, here in chapter 22, they build an altar. Now, here's the point of the altar. They, uh, these two and a half tribes, they're separated from the rest of Israel by this major boundary marker. And in fact, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, that particularly is the promised land, right? So they're outside of of what would be considered the, the primary promised land. And so what they're afraid of is as the years go by and generations go on, that there'll be a forgetting, that people won't remember that this is all one group of people. They want to make sure that they set up landmarks so that there's not that forgetfulness. So they set up this altar by way of remembrance, not to offer sacrifices, not to do what God has not commanded to go against his commands, but for remembrance. Well, the tribes on the other side of the Jordan go, are you kidding me? After all that we went through wandering in the wilderness and and God's judgment, and these people have so quickly slipped back into apostasy and departure from from God's, and they get their swords and they go ready to go to war. And it is Phinehas, who I think is just a beautiful character. He's the same one who with great zeal back in the book of Numbers in chapter 25 drove a spear through uh, an Israelite and a, and a Gideonite woman uh, or Midianite woman to stop the plague that was sweeping through Israel for, for their idolatry and their fornication. And so you look at a guy like that and he's at the front of this, this band of people going to, to go to war with their brethren. But here Phinehas says, would you tell us what's happening? Now notice, he's asking that question with an army right behind him. That's not that's not necessarily the most peaceful way to approach that. It's it's not I'm sure there's nothing wrong. I'm sure it's more like we hope there's nothing wrong. But if there is, we will wipe you out. Because we will not risk God's judgment again. Now on the other side they could have said, "How dare you?" accuse us of that. Who do you think you are? That's not what they did. On the other side, they said, whoa, we understand. In fact, if we were doing what you thought we were doing, then you are absolutely right in this approach. Would that people would take accusations like that? Even if they're false accusations Oh man, if I was doing what you just thought, I would be just as upset, maybe even more upset than you are. But that's not what we're doing. And they explain that this is for remembrance, that this is to set up 
that connection so that the people do not forget. And there's peace. And the people are able to put their swords away and everybody goes home. And there's reconciliation here. What we generally do is find escalation in that moment. We think somebody did something and we accuse them and then, or maybe somebody thinks we did something and our pride swells up instead of thinking, what would I do if I thought that that was the case? I could just imagine maybe for some reason if my wife thought that there was some infidelity, how might she accuse me of that? Well, I might hope she would approach that with some level of trust, but maybe Maybe something, maybe somebody said something to her and maybe she's got really good reason to think that's the case. I imagine that accusation might be might be with an army at the back. We're going to go to war. And I would want to say, if I did that, you would be right to be furious. And then, if I'm innocent... I am going to make my case. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to apologize for something I didn't do. But I'm going to understand that the accusation comes from, that the the feeling with the accusation comes from a place of some level of legitimacy. In Galatians chapter 2, however, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul relates to us the time that he had to go and accuse, rebuke his fellow apostle Peter to his face. Interestingly, this is in the midst of of him sort of um, defending the notion that he did not get the gospel like he's not a second-hand apostle. And one of the aspects of, of... Helping these people understand that he's not not a second-hand apostle is is this story where, you know, I didn't get my gospel from Peter. In fact, I've had to go preach the gospel to Peter. I think that's part of the aspect of bringing this story up. It says in verse 11 there in Galatians 2, When Cephas uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And he goes on to tell why. For prior to the coming of certain men from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. He was acting the hypocrite. He says Barnabas was being carried away with his hypocrisy. And so for this, there is no defense. Peter comes, or uh, Paul comes in strong. He comes in in front of other witnesses. And can you imagine Peter and everything that we know about Peter by reading through the Gospels? I could imagine there could have been some redness that comes up the neck and into the face. And his response might be, how dare you accuse me like this in front of everybody? How dare you embarrass me? I don't have any indication of that. Not here. Not in Peter's epistles. In fact, the very opposite seems to be true. That their relationship... If there was a problem, it certainly was repaired. And that Peter expresses regard for his brother Paul. I think we're all too concerned with how people approach us. Instead of being concerned with, am I to be blamed? I I want to be sympathetic with the accuser. I, I want to try to understand. 
And if the accuser is justified, I'm not concerned about how they approach me. I'm concerned about clearing my name. Whether that means apologies and begging for forgiveness, or whether that means presenting evidence to show that maybe I'm not guilty. Either way, I want to I appreciate that this person's trying to get some clarity. Maybe they're not going about it in the best way. What do I want at the end of all this? I want reconciliation. That means I'm not going to go through the details saying, well, you know, you, you, you could have come to me like this and you'd have got a better response. No. I, I want to be reconciled. And so let me, let me deal with the particulars, the facts of the case, as it were. Well, <clears throat> what if we are guilty then? First of all, let me say again, if our sorrow is over something that's not our fault, then maybe all we need to do is just express that. We need to feel sorrow. We need to express that sorrow. But if the sorrow is over something that we have done, then we need to be looking towards correction. Here, in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 and in verse 8, That is the story of Zacchaeus that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. He made these efforts to be able to see Jesus. Jesus sees him and tells him to come down and he would go to his house today. And in verse 8, after they had had this conversation, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That is somebody that says, I will go as far as I need to. I will go the extra mile. It's not, I'm going to give back. If I took something from somebody I shouldn't have, I'm going to give them that back. No, I'm going to restore and then restore and then restore and then restore. That's somebody who seems energetic, who seems zealous, to set right what he set wrong. That means that I'm going to look to the future about not doing that again. I think inherent in the idea of if of I'm going to restore fourfold is I'm not going to defraud anybody else in addition to that. So, going back to the relationships that we have, if I've, if I've been hurtful to somebody, even if I'm not being intentional, I'm going to look to to understand why and how that happened so that I can avoid that in the future. What if it's a serious hurt? If someone is sorry for committing fornication, then they're not only going to to simply try to avoid, um, not, not, not just not going to commit fornication in the future, but they're going to really work and try to take steps. They're going to go... Well, as Jesus would put it in in Matthew chapter 5, pluck out the eye, cut off the hand, do what it takes. Don't get near this anymore. Be desperate not to fall into that anymore. So it's not just a sorrow over the wrongdoing. I think a lot of people do only sorrow. We were talking about people, people repenting, people confessing sin the other day, and sometimes people really are broken up. They're very sorrowful. The sorrow is at the weight and the guilt. 
But it's not sorrow that is thoughtful towards correction, towards I don't want to be here. I don't want this to happen again. It's more of, I just feel bad. It's, 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 there needs to be some energy with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to work to not come here again. We must look to make the repairs that are necessary. If I've taken something, I must give it back and maybe fourfold. If I've lied, then I must come clean with the truth and maybe maybe even overshare now because maybe maybe I, I'm less trusted and so I've got to be more transparent in the future to make sure that I'm repairing the damage of having told the lie. If I've married into adultery, I must cease the adultery. The marriage itself is adultery. And so I can't just continue on in that and say, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm going to keep on in the sin. I hate it. You don't really. You don't hate the sin. There's no sorrow there if there's not a turning around, a going the other way. The very word repent carries that notion. And so we're going through all this and we're being thoughtful of what we should do to express sorrow, to express a a, a responsibility that I take responsibility for my actions. I want that reconciliation. But what about the other side of that? What about forgiveness? We're not focusing on that so much. Let's say that we have expressed sorrow. We said, I I truly am sorry. We've, We've given the attitude. We've been specific We've taken responsibility. We've tried to correct for both the past and for the future. And now what we want is forgiveness. We want this person to say, all is well. All is reconciled. Let me me say that when you are concerned about making an apology, that needs to be your only concern. You are not in the place to preach a sermon about forgiveness when you are the one asking for it. We're beggars when we're looking for forgiveness. We're asking for something. Do you what mean what what, when you're asking for something, it means that you're not in a place to demand it. Well maybe you are. I mean there you could be. There are places where you can be in a in a place to demand it, but you ask anyway. I understand that. But in the case of forgiveness, what you're saying is, this is not my right. I don't, I don't have a right to say, you forgive me. Saying, I have no right to it, so I'm asking for it. Would you, could you forgive me? And so we don't need to camp out on the other side of that question and say, now, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. No, no, no. You're on the asking side. And maybe, maybe they do need to forgive. Maybe that's what God would have of them. But it's not yours to demand. Too often people come with a very shallow apology. Unconvincing. They don't make many efforts. And then they say, where's my forgiveness? How dare you withhold forgiveness from me? You're supposed to forgive. My ears sting when I hear people say that. I I just, I can't stand it. For somebody to talk like that about the person that they're supposed to be begging forgiveness from. In Luke chapter 3, 
In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and, and crowds are coming out to hear him. And it says in verse 7, he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. What would you say? Somebody came forward. Preacher, during the invitation song, the preacher goes over and sits down and talks with them and got up and said, this person doesn't really want to repent. I think we'd say, excuse me, who are you to judge that? I think we all may have to make those judgments from time to time. I had to make that judgment one time. A woman came forward. She's sniffling and got some tears. And uh, she, uh, there were some obvious things in her life that needed to be cleaned up. And I was very hopeful. I was like, oh, hey, a response. We got a pulse. I sat down. And I said, what, what's happening? And she said, I, I am sorry that I have not been here like I should, but these people here do not care about me. I said, pardon? And she said, yeah. She said, I know, I know I should be doing better, but these people ought to be doing more to help me. She wanted to confess everybody else's sins more than she wanted to confess anything she had done wrong. And I did have to stand up and say, our sisters come forward but she's not ready to be sorry about her sins. She's sorry about our sins. And they may be there, but those aren't hers to confess. And I think sometimes that's, that's the way we are. We are more sorry about other people's sins. This is a conversation I have with my girls, and I try to have with myself. They get into heated conflict. And, and I, I know that they're just not always at each other's throats. It probably sounds like it this week because I'm talking about parenting. They, they really do get along a lot. But, but they might get into it one day. And they've both said and done things they, they shouldn't have. And I'll sit one of them down and I'll try to talk to them about that. And say, but Dad, you do not understand. Listen to what she said. I, I got you. That's awful. She shouldn't have said that. What did you say? What did you do? Well, I did this, but she... And one question I just ask them. Whose bad behavior are you more hurt by? Yours or hers? And I think we will always have a problem apologizing in a way we ought to as long as other people's sins hurt us more than our own. When we're more upset by the bad behavior of other people than for our own bad behavior. This, this is the first and primary and most important concern God has given me. And if I think other people need to get their act together before I get my act together, I want to make sure you're going to forgive me before I show that I really am going to be sincere in my apology. Before we can really get some rec reconciliation, I want some indications. I'll, I'll tip, dip my toes in my, I'm sorry. Okay, all right, you're going to accept it. So, No. My approach is going to be, no matter what you say in response, I'm going to pour out my sorrow. And I'm going to beg for the forgiveness. 
I'm going to take it as my responsibility to convince you that I'm serious. A man comes and begs forgiveness of his wife for unfaithfulness. And she says, I don't know if I can trust you. And he says, well, I got nothing for that. A man comes and begs for forgiveness for his unfaithfulness. She says, Maybe we can reconcile this, but I'm going to need some transparency. Well, what exactly do you want? I'm going to need you to turn the GPS on your phone on because I'm going to need to know where you are. You don't have any right to that information. You're not sorry. You're a beggar, man. You have no rights to demand from her, and she has every right to demand from you. We need to know what position we're in. David understood that in Psalm 51. One of the best examples, I think, of, of understanding the position of the one who has committed the offense. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. You see, through all of that, David is saying, I, I, I don't have anything to bring to the table here of value, except my sorrow. And I'm just begging you, to do what you can. What only you can. And there is no indication of this wasn't so bad. There is, let me describe this, the filthiness from every angle that I possibly, I'm going to use three words to describe the sin, the, the levels, different aspects of the way that this was sin. I'm going to use different concepts to talk about the way that I need to be washed and cleansed to be released from this sin. He understands the, the bigness of his sin. This is not a lesson then about the need to extend forgiveness. We're not talking about that person. We're talking about the one who seeks it. It is true <coughs> that the one who is being asked needs to be ready to extend forgiveness that's not our focus. Again, I take you back to the prodigal son. He recognizes that there is great privilege back in his father's house. That he was cast out of... Or he wasn't cast out. He walked away. Excuse me. He walked away from great blessings. And it tells us that he came to himself in verse 17, came to his senses 
And he said to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I'll get up. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. We get down to verse 21. He comes, his father having embraced and kissed him. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And we note he doesn't make it all the way into to the end of the thing he resolved to say. Before he gets there, his, his father has accepted the apology. And his father embraces him. But I think one of the problems as sometimes people go through this story is they talk about the, the unconditional acceptance of the father as if the son didn't come. Can you imagine if the son comes waltzing back up and says, uh, is my bedroom ready? I'd uh, tell you what I'd like for dinner tonight. I don't think the story ends the same way if that's the way it goes. I think he would say, I think your room's at the big stop. You're not ready to come back here. You see, he gained entrance and he got his old room back and he got the fatted calf because he came saying, I will come in through the servant's door. That's why he was allowed to come through the front door. But if he demanded entrance, it's not available to him. And so we don't demand apologies. Not from God, and not even, I think, from each other. We're just not owed forgiveness. I think because God gives it so freely... We think that we can ask with that air. We think we can ask him with that air, maybe. Tom called it the posture, unassuming posture of prayer. That even though God has promised all of these things, we still come and say, I do not deserve this. Would you please give this to me? It's not mine to demand. That is the sort of apology we want to make. Could you? Would you? And let me say that when you do that, it is the best reconciliation. And it can turn a hard heart, a heart that is unwilling to forgive. You can help the person who's having trouble forgiving. You know, sometimes it's like it's like we test their will to forgive. No, I want to make it, you know, on the one hand, if we're preaching a lesson of forgiveness, we want to say, I, I want to make reconcil- reconciliation easy on that end. But on this end, I want to make it as easy as possible to forgive me. There's a a man who I love dearly, who I offended many years ago. And I I, I didn't think at the time about what I was doing. and, And on reflection, I knew. I knew I had behaved badly. And 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 he word got to me that he was offended. I, I typed out a lengthy email in what I hoped would be a sincerely communicated apology, sent that along, and very soon I got an email back that said, This is not how you apologize. 
when you have offended someone like this, you come and you say it to their face. He lived five hours away. And he was leaving the next day to go on a trip. What do I do? Amy said, what are you going to do? It was a Saturday. I've got to preach the next day. I said, well, I don't want to wait two weeks till he gets back from his trip. And so we got in the car and we drove five hours. And I knocked on his door. He opened the door. Tears filled his eyes. He said, I can't believe you would come to a I said, I want your forgiveness. I said, it's yours. Before I could say anything, it's yours. We sat down. We had a good conversation. I went home reconciled. Last Thanksgiving, we were together, me and this fellow. He said, I don't know how much longer I have left here. He's an older man. He said, I want you to preach my funeral. He said, I don't trust anybody as much as I would trust you to speak at that moment. Now, that could have ended very differently if I had just taken it. And how dare he not forgive me? It's not mine to, it's not mine to set the terms. I want what he's got. So he says, this is what it takes. I'll do it. If I can, I will do it. And I think both of our relationships and both of our views of each other grew for it. Well, I just want to leave you with this. How how do you word a good apology? I I don't mean just like this, but I think here are some principles I've thought about that from from putting together all that I can think about about apologies in the Scripture. Here's some concepts that I think need to be in any good apology. I am sorry for. I think sometimes our apologies are too short. We just say, oh, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? This is something I ask my girls. They'll come and say, I'm sorry, Daddy. What for? Because a lot of times they just want the conflict to be over and don't want to think about any changes. What did you do? Let the person know that you're sorry for what you did, not simply sorry that things aren't smooth right now. It was wrong because... Let them know why it was wrong, that, that it's not... It's not, it was wrong because you're overly sensitive. It was wrong because I was careless or thoughtless or worse. In the future, I'm going to do this. What are you going to do? It lets them know. It helps to build trust. I'm showing you I want to avoid doing this going forward. Without this then let me just say, you're probably going to be apologizing frequently. Well, we may be anyway. But we'll probably be apologizing for the same thing over and over again. Finally, would you please forgive me? I think that's an element that we leave out of our apologies a lot. It makes us not think about that part of it. We say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And that lets them know it's an acknowledgement that I'm in your debt. I require your forgiveness in order to be released from that debt. And it puts the choice in their hands and admits that you have no right to demand 
It's yours to give or not. I've even had people say, when I say, would you forgive me? They say, I have to think about it. Maybe that's not the response I want. But if, I, if I'm sincere, then I give them that. It's, it's theirs. And I think by showing them that I mean it, I mean it, then that truly leaves it in their hands. What about you this evening? Do you have sorrow? Is there something you could do to remove that sorrow? Not just sorrow over, maybe you're sorry because you got on Facebook today. You saw something on Twitter. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, are you you sorry about something that you could change, that you could correct? Are you sorry about something that, that puts distance between you and God? I will say that while the hearts of men do take time to repair sometimes, and we are not ever confident that we can quickly put to rights what has gone wrong between men and other men among ourselves, that while we do come to God with contrition, we come with, with contrite confidence, Broken boldness, as one fellow put it. I like that notion. That's Hebrews chapter 4. That we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. You could come begging knowing what the answer would be. But knowing it because you come begging. And so you could, you could make the foundation of your apologies to each other built on the foundation of the apology that we should all start with, that is to God. You see, that's, that's the way David looked at it, you and you alone. And if I, if I get that right, that gives me the confidence and the basis to try to set other things right. And so if you need to start there this evening, if we can help you reconcile in any way, won't you come forward while we stand and while we sing?